Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus is alive. That is a historical fact that cannot be debated. It cannot be questioned. And the reason why it cannot be questioned is, as we looked at on Friday, he died a death that cannot be challenged. Romans made sure that they would crucify their uh, criminals and execute them in such a way that there was no possible hope of them remaining alive. As we looked at on Good Friday, there's even record, we have Roman record of Roman soldiers taking a man down from the cross and as the man with some amount of energy left in his body, his eyes twitched and, and he maybe gasped for breath, the Roman centurion that was in charge of that crucifixion instantly crucified his Roman soldiers because they did not do their job of executing the criminal. You had to be good and dead, and crucifixion was the means by which the Romans certifiably made sure that you were good and dead. It was cruel, it was lingering, it was public, it was certifiable. Therefore, Jesus died a death that cannot be challenged. And when he rose, it's the greatest act of human history because we know that he conquered sin, he conquered death. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. He was declared by God the Father to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection. That word declared in the Greek, horizo, it's where we get our word horizon. When God the Father raised the Son from the dead, he established a horizon in the entire world such that no one can miss it. It's a line of demarcation, east, west, north, south. It is obvious and it is clear through the resurrection of Jesus that he is who he claimed to be. Christianity, therefore, is the only religion whose adherents go to the burial location of their leader just to worship and affirm the fact that he's not there. His remains are gone. The question is, what if Jesus' remains are in the tomb in Jerusalem? What if he didn't rise from the dead? Does that change anything? If you ask that question of any other religion, if you ask a Buddhist, if you were to say, I, I don't think that you can do this, I don't think you could historically prove that Buddha was not a true person, but if you could, if you could go to a Buddhist and say, historically, your leader, your founder, never existed. Again, I don't think you can do that, but if you could, and you ask them, does that change your religion? Does that change your life? Does that change the way that you live and see your life? Their answer would be no. It doesn't really change anything. Yeah, there's a certain degree where we're not going to actually follow a man, but we never really followed a man to begin with. We're following ideologies. We're following principles. We're following philosophies. I can still live the ideals of this Buddha person, even though maybe he didn't exist. I can still live his ideals out by being kind, compassionate, peaceful, unifying. So my life would not change. You can ask that of any religion and they will tell you ultimately if their founder 
was never a real actual historical person, ultimately it doesn't change their ideologies. It doesn't change the way they live their lives. It doesn't change their religion. What about Christianity? If Jesus was not a, an hist- a historically real person, if he died but didn't rise from the dead, does that change anything? Many evangelicals would say, mm, not really, because he's risen in my heart, and, and his ideologies of love and peace and unity, those still apply to me, and I can still live those out. So even if he's dead, that's sad, but my religion wouldn't change. I think Paul would say everything changes. If Jesus died and stayed dead, everything changes. This is the idea that he allows. He's playing with us this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because the Corinthian church was struggling to believe that there actually is a resurrection from the dead. And so Paul logically reasons with them to say, wait, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised... Everything changes. So let's read these verses together. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. And then we'll dive in after we ask God's blessing on our time. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep, some have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether it was... I then or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have hoped in Jesus in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Oh, Father, these are rich words, and I pray that your spirit 
would point us to Jesus, would point us to the, the magnitude of what is taking place in these moments. God, I pray that we would see Christ as our only hope and we would see the necessity of the resurrection and then we would celebrate it rightly because of all the things that the resurrection produces in our hearts and in our lives. And God, above all, I pray that your son's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead would be magnified, exalted, and glorified and that he would receive praise, exaltation, from those that he has redeemed by his death and through his resurrection. We pray it in the name of our risen Savior. Amen. Paul is writing this book to the church in Corinth, which is made up mainly of Greeks. Uh, these are people from Greek, Greece with a mentality that is a Greek mentality. And you need to know that because the Greeks had bought into a, a sort of dualism. Um, matter, physical matter is bad, spirit and spiritual is good. Therefore, Greeks believed in an afterlife. They believed that once you died, something happened after you died. But they did not believe in a bodily resurrection. Because what you want to do, as Plato says so many times, is you want to be removed from the cage of your flesh, from the cage of matter that is so bad. You want to be removed from that. And when you die, you finally get freedom and release from the cage of your flesh and your matter, physical matter. So why would you ever want to be reunited back to matter in a physical sense when you're raised? You remember in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is speaking at Mars Hill and he's sharing the gospel with Greeks there at the Areopagus. He speaks of the gospel. He speaks of Jesus. He speaks first of God creating the world through Jesus and then us having to give an account. And as he shares the gospel, everybody's shaking their head saying, yes, yes, amen, amen. We believe that, we believe that. And then he comes in verse 32 to the resurrection. Jesus was killed. He died in our place. He died to forgive sins. And everybody's looking going, yes, I agree with that. That's fine. That's all good. That's well. And then he said, and then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And what's their response? Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, they began to sneer. No, 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 no. You can't say that a body is raised from the dead. Spiritually, we're raised, but not physically. So, Paul has to encourage the Corinthian church. They've bought into this idea. Yes, there's a quote-unquote resurrection as far as our spirit is concerned, but not bodily. We are not going to be raised with a bodily uh, resurrection where our soul, our spirit is put back into a glorified body and we are made one again. No, that's not going to happen. The church in Corinth had bought into that. So, let's follow Paul's flow of thought here. Just in verses 1 through 11, Paul tells the Corinthian church that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central event in Christianity. This is verses 1 through 11. It's a historical fact, and it's based on two things in Paul's writing that make it a historical fact. Number one, there's an empty tomb. Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. And number two, the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. As many as 17 groups of people, the Bible tells us that Jesus witnessed to and appeared to after his resurrection from the dead. And here, Paul tells us that at one time he appeared to more than 500 brethren. This is in verse 6. And most of them remain until now. Let's say most is 412 people are still alive. Of the 500 that saw him bodily after his death. 
Paul says it's a historical fact. You can't argue this. That's absolutely true. And then he moves in his flow of thought and argument in verse 12 to show the church in Corinth how illogical their position is. He says, in essence, let's assume for a moment that dead people are not raised, that their bodies stay in the ground, that their soul and spirit moves on to some other place, but they are not raised physically. Then logically, in verse 12, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you among you say there is no resurrection? And logically, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If nobody is raised from the dead physically, then not even Jesus was raised physically, right? He had a body. This assumes the incarnation. This is why the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus is so crucial. 100% God, 100% man. He was truly human. The Greeks would not have thought that. If God is going to come down, he's going to come down as a spirit to live among us as a spirit. But he's not going to take on flesh because flesh is bad. Matter is bad. So Paul assumes correctly the biblical doctrine of the incarnation that Jesus was God, very God, man, very man, fully human, died a physical death. And so he says, if if you say there's no resurrection from the dead, this is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. If you say there's no resurrection from the dead, then let's play that out to its logical conclusion. Nobody's raised. He's going to prove, yes, people are raised from the dead. We're not even going to get into that today. He's going to prove that in 1 Corinthians 15. The church in Corinth was denying that there's any bodily, physical resurrection. Paul says that's impossible. And he goes through a list of six staggering consequences. That if the dead, period, are not raised bodily, then Jesus is not raised. It's not been raised from the dead. And here's where he moves into his next argument to say, what would it look like? To have a a savior who died and was not raised from the dead. What would that produce in our lives? Six staggering consequences if Jesus has not been raised. Starting in verse 14, number one. If Jesus is dead in a grave in a tomb somewhere and he has not been raised from the dead, number one, our preaching is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. This is in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Our preaching is vain. Preaching, that word there is not the act of communicating truth. It's the content. It's the truth itself. And what is the content? It's the gospel. Verses 3 through 4. What I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That content is in vain. The word vain means useless or without substance or absolutely void. It doesn't matter at all. We have no content. Without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. Without the resurrection, there's no legitimate gospel. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, I would not be preaching because I have no content to preach. If there is no resurrection, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be doing what we're doing. If Jesus is still dead, I have no message to preach to you. So my entire job and goal and ministry is pointless and you're wasting your time. You should do something else on a Sunday morning. There's no point being here if we have no gospel that is legitimate if Jesus is dead. Number two, not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. This is in verse 14 and verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. 
It's vain. It's useless. Your faith is without substance. It's absolutely void. There's no content inside of it. This is very interesting because Paul says they have faith, but their faith is useless. What faith do they have if they don't believe in the resurrection? They have a faith that doesn't do anything, that's pointless. They've rejected some aspect of the resurrection, and maybe even in their in their Christian mindset, they've reinterpreted and redefined the resurrection. Well, I believe in the resurrection as far as Jesus rising from the dead in my heart. His mission died, but no, it hasn't died. It's carried along in, in my ministry. But I, I don't believe that he actually rose from the dead physically. And what Paul is saying here is either the tomb is empty or your gospel and your faith is empty. Either the tomb is empty or your gospel and your faith is empty. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the gospel is the cross and the resurrection hand in hand. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to have cross and resurrection hand in hand or you have no saving faith. You have no gospel. You can believe all you want, but your belief will be worthless. No amount of believing will help if the object of your faith is flawed. You can be as sincere as you want to be, but if the object is flawed, it is still worthless. Many of you know I have really bad allergies. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I'm very much looking forward to heaven, because a new body with no allergies will be a great thing. I've tried almost every medication there is out there to try and stop the allergies. Many of them have failed me <laughs> miserably. So what if one of you came up to me and you said, I have a pill. It will change your life. This pill will take care of all of the allergies that you've ever had and ever will have. Take this and you'll never have allergies ever again. And you hand me a bag of Reese's Pieces. I would be more than happy to eat them. I would be more than happy to take them home. My kids would love you for giving that to me. If I went home and I said, okay, somebody said that these Magical pills will help me and my allergies go away. And I believe with all of my heart that they will take my allergies away. Will they? If my, if the object of my belief is flawed, it doesn't matter how much I believe. And so Paul says, no, 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 the object of your faith is flawed if you believe in a dead Savior. Drop down to verse 17 because Paul says the same thing but in a different nuanced way. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. That word worthless literally means doesn't produce anything. You're hoping that it produces something, but it doesn't produce anything. It it produces no real forgiveness. It produces no real sanctification. It will not produce a glorification at the end times. So Paul says, number two, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. Your faith is empty because it has absolutely no foundation whatsoever. Number three, not only is our preaching in vain if Jesus has not been raised, our faith is in vain. And number three, we are liars. We are liars. This is verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Uh, We are even found. That's one word in the Greek. And it's the word, it, it connotes the idea of discovering or finding somebody out in something that they're doing wrong. They've been lying, they've been covering up, but you've found them out. You've discovered their lies. You've discovered what they have been lying about. 
You've discovered their true character. And Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we've been found out. We're liars. Why? Three reasons. We've testified against God. Number one, we claim that God himself said something that he never said. We have claimed that God has said something that he did not say. And brothers and sisters, it is a serious crime to say God said something when he didn't say it. That is a serious offense to a holy God. So Paul says, if I'm saying that Jesus has been raised by the Father, and the Father tells me I'm not raising anybody from the dead, nobody's raised physically, then we're lying about what God has said. Number two, we're false witnesses because you can't trust anything that we have said. Go back to verse three. I delivered to you as first importance that Christ was killed for our sins. And verse four, he was buried and he rose on the third day. Not just Paul, but Cephas and the twelve and all the five hundred and James All of the apostles, they're all liars too. So God's being found out to be saying something that he never said. And they're they're saying something that God never said. Not just the apostles, but also Jesus himself. You remember in John chapter 2, we studied this about a year and a half ago. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. And when he cleanses the temple, the, the opening of his public earthly ministry, he cleanses the temple... And all the religious leaders say, whoa, 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 who gave you the authority to do that? Are you, are you a part of our group? Are, are you in the union of the, the Temple Mount operators? Who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Do you want to know the authority that I have to do this? Here's the sign. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it back up again. I will rebuild it. He claimed to raise himself from the dead. I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. John even says in a parenthetical statement after that, his disciples didn't understand this until he was raised from the dead, and then they knew what he was talking about. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then Jesus' claim of, here's, here's the reason I have authority, it was a lie. He said he was going to raise himself from the dead, and he was never raised from the dead, therefore he is a liar. We are liars. Jesus is a liar. These are just multiplying in their uh, seriousness. Number four, if Jesus has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, we are liars. And number four, we are still in our sins. We are still in our sins. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then sin's power is unbroken. Death is proven to be stronger than God. The reason why this is, is sin is a twofold problem to us. Sin has a penalty that we cannot pay and has a power that we cannot overcome. Sin has a penalty that we cannot pay and a power that we cannot overcome. What's the penalty? The penalty of our sin is death. The wages of our sin is death, not just physically, but spiritually. We cannot pay that. If we are to pay that, we will spend eternity in hell separated from God in death, in spiritual death. But it's not just hell that needs to be paid as far as spiritual death is concerned. The power of death is that, or the power of sin is that death has a final say over us. 
Because we have sinned, we deserve to die, not just spiritually, but also physically. So if Jesus dies on the cross for the penalty of sin, he has forgiven us and we are free. But if he dies and he stays under the power of sin, then sin has not been conquered. If he stays dead, sin's power is not overcome and therefore the penalty is still being paid. And if the payment has not been made fully, then we are still in our sins. Jesus has to rise from the dead in order to fully pay the penalty for and overcome the power of our sin. So if Jesus is still dead, then we are still under condemnation. To say that Jesus is Lord is a meaningless statement because what is he Lord over? He's being lorded over by death. You might say, well, but isn't it the death of Jesus that forgives sins? Isn't it Jesus' death that takes away our guilt, our shame, and our sins? Turn to Romans chapter 4. Amen and amen. It is the death of Jesus that removes our sins. But if Jesus stayed dead, then our sins would not be removed. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Paul writes this. Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So earlier he's talking about the crediting of the righteousness of Jesus into our account and that Jesus' perfection was given to us by that transaction. Our sin placed on Jesus, Jesus' righteousness placed into our account. How did that happen? Verse 25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions, but he was raised, he was raised from the dead because of our justification. That word because of can mean two things. He was raised in order to justify us, or he was raised because our justification had happened. And I actually think both of them work. He was raised in order to culminate the justification, to declare us righteous before God because our sin has been paid for. But he was raised because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. What Paul is saying here is when Jesus cried out on the cross, as we looked at on Friday night, it is finished. It's paid in full. It's done. He dies and he's entrusting that sacrifice to the father. And the father is looking at that sacrifice. And if the father says it's not satisfied, it's not paid in full, you are wrong, Jesus, then he will not raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus stays dead in the tomb, in the grave, because that sacrifice didn't work. It was not satisfying to the father. But if that sacrifice is satisfying to the father, if when Jesus says it is finished, the father says, yes, it is. Then the father will raise Jesus from the dead to say, yes, what he said happened actually happened. It's a vindication of Jesus's claims. So to show us that our justification is truly happening. The father says, I will raise him. I will raise him. I will validate. I will vindicate. I will validate the work that he did on the cross. So if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then the father says, nice try. It was a decent attempt, but forgiveness is not possible through that sacrifice. We need another. Easter Sunday is the validation of Good Friday. And if Jesus is still dead in the tomb and he didn't conquer sin and he didn't conquer death, then my question is, who can? Who can if he can't? Turn to Acts chapter 5. This passage is profound. There's a word in this passage that is just profound. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. 
This is Peter and the apostles together saying we must obey God rather than man. And they say this, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He is the one whom God exalted through the resurrection and the ascension to his right hand as a prince and a savior. That word prince, that's an amazing word. In the Greek, that word can be used to describe in maritime vocabulary, in boats and ships and, and uh, working on the ocean and the seas. That word is used of the strongest sailor, the strongest swimmer on a boat, on a ship. He was, den- he was denoted as the prince. This man is our prince. And his job, if anything happened to the ship, would be to tie a rope around him, anchor it to the ship, and try and swim as fast as he could and as strong as he could to land somewhere. And then he would tie that rope onto something on land, anchored onto land, and then he would swim back, following his rope, back to the ship and grab sailor, and bring him over and go back. Grab another sailor, bring him over, go back. Grab another sailor, bring... That's a prince. So Jesus is our prince, Peter's saying. Our ship is sinking... And Jesus is the only one who can save us. And so he swam across through the wrath of God to the other side. And he made a way for us and he's coming back to get us and he brings us over and he saves us. What Paul is saying is if Jesus, our prince, has drowned in the waters going back to get us and to bring us to freedom and salvation. If he drowned, then we cannot be saved. Our sins will destroy us. And we will die. We will die. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul isn't done with this church in Corinth. He's not done. Things are getting worse. We're still in our sins. We're still dead in our trespasses. So he says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, number one, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, we are liars, we are still in our sins, and logically then, verse 18, number five, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is verse 18, then, that word then, implied conclusion of what was said. Look, if you're still in your sins because Jesus has not been raised from the dead and you're alive, then those who have died, trusting in Jesus to forgive them of their sins, they were still in their sins when they were alive, and therefore they are dead. They have perished. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep is died, in Christ, that means believers, have perished. That's not just died. Paul uses the word perished very specifically, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, the gospel of the glory of God is veiled by Satan to those who are perishing. This isn't just death. This is hell. And it's logical. If your sins haven't been paid for in this life, then when you die, your sins have not been paid for. And you will spend eternity separated from God forever in hell. Number six, and, and last, Paul says in verse 19, if Jesus has not been raised, then we are of all men most 
to be pitied. If we have hoped in Jesus in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus is only good for this life, then we are pitiful. The life that I am choosing to live is stupid. It's foolish. Jesus won't be returning because he's dead. He's not going to come and take me home. History has no goal, has no purpose. The human race is going nowhere. Paul stacks argument upon argument, and they just get heavier and weightier until he finally says, look, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Six staggering consequences if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And brothers and sisters, I want us to feel that weight. So often when we come to Easter Sunday, we say, he's risen and we're happy. But why are we happy? Look at the consequences of what would happen if Jesus was not raised from the dead. We would be in a dire predicament. We would be in trouble. We would be, of all people, most to be pitied. And our lives would be pointless, meaningless. But you know, verse 20, Paul has given us a weighty argument to say, no, no, the resurrection from the dead is absolutely true. It has to be true. Jesus rose from the dead. And if he didn't, here's all the things that would happen. He entertains that hypothetical possibility. Let's say for a moment that he didn't rise from the dead. And then he emphatically says in verse 20, Oh, but now. But now. It could be translated as a matter of fact, or this is the truth. Okay, we've, we've entertained a, a hypothesis here. That's false. Here's the truth. But now Christ has been raised. He is alive. He is not dead. He's been raised from the dead. He's not in the tomb. Therefore, everything that I just said is not true. He's given us hope. He has been raised in the perfect tense in the Greek. He was raised at one moment in time and forever the implications stand. He is our risen Savior. One author puts it this way. The corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that tomb. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you'd been there, pull open his bruised eyelids, matted together with mottled blood, you would have stared into blank holes. If you had lifted his arm, you would have felt no resistance. You would have only heard a, a thud as it hit the table when you let it go. And you would have walked away from that morbid scene, muttering to yourself, clearly the wages of sin is death. But, somewhere before dawn... On a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened, and the breath of God came blowing into that cave, and a new creation flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus and with him all of us from death. He was vindicating Jesus and with him all of us. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was reaffirming, reaffirming what he had said over the Jordan waters. This is my beloved son, and I am well pleased in him. And he declared Jesus to be the son of God with power. Oh, he's alive. 
He's been raised from the dead. And therefore, since he's been raised, Paul says he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits. That's just an obvious term in farming. If, if an apple tree sprouts a couple fruits, those are the first fruits. And you know, hey, we're going to get some fruits behind it. Like we've got fruit coming. If Jesus is raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of the harvest of the resurrection, then we too will follow. We'll be raised as well. Therefore, we can flip all six points that Paul has said to their positive. Since Christ has been raised, number one, our preaching is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. Our ministry is effective. We have a content that changes lives. We're not just up here giving our opinions. We have truth from God himself that is effective. Number two, your faith is not in vain. Your faith produces something. It produces forgiveness. It produces reconciliation. It produces growth and godliness. It produces a whole host of blood-bought promises. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you know that God raised him from the dead, then your faith works. It produces something. Number three, we're speaking accurately on behalf of God. No, we're not found out to be liars. We're found out to be telling the truth. The apostles are true. Jesus is true. There is somebody that's true in this world. There's someone trustworthy. How many people do we look at on television and we see a a facade and, and they say things, but you know they're not meaning them or they're found out to be liars? Not so our Savior. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he did just that. He's trustworthy. And the preaching of his word, when accurately done, is trustworthy and true as well. Jesus lives. He didn't lie. There aren't any skeletons in God's closet. Jesus is alive. Number four, we are forgiven. We are forgiven of our sins. This is the greatest need of every human heart. And this is the foundation of every other blessing that we receive from God. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. God cannot, and here we speak with reverence, the everlasting God cannot reject a sinner who pleads the blood of Jesus. For if he did so, it would be to deny himself. And he can never revoke that divine acceptance of the resurrection. And if thou goest to God, my hearer, pleading simply and only the blood of him who did hang upon the tree, God must un-God himself before he can reject you or reject that blood. Because of the resurrection, we have been justified, Romans 4, 25. God validated, God the Father validated the work that Jesus did on the cross by raising him from the dead. Bruce Ware says it this way, the single most glorious reality about the resurrection of Jesus is what it demonstrated. The horrific penalty of our sin forgiven fully and the crushing power of our sin conquered completely. These are the realities demonstrated and proven when Jesus walked out of that tomb alive from the dead. We're forgiven. When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's extended to us through the mercy and the ministry of the cross. And we have been forgiven. Number five, those who have died in Christ have not perished. They're not in hell. They're alive in glory. They're more alive than we could possibly comprehend. Believers that have fallen asleep in Jesus, that have died in Jesus, understand this, that death is not a wall, it's a door. Death is a door to get to Jesus. That's why Paul says to die would be gain. 
in Philippians chapter 1. Finally, when Paul says, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied, then we can flip that around as well. Not only is our preaching working, it's effective, we have content. Not only is our faith producing something and worth something and valuable, not only are we forgiven, not only are we not liars, not only have those who have died in Christ, they're not in hell, but they're in heaven with him in glory, with Jesus in glory. But finally, we are of all people most to be envied. Believers are of all people most to be envied. If we're not pitied, we're envied. There's such a beautiful incentive hidden inside of that promise. All of us, I believe, I hope, at our best and highest moments, all of us at some point in our lives dream of living lives that have meaning that have significance. I want to do something. I, I don't want to be self-indulgent. I want to be sacrificial in the way that I love others. I want to give my life for someone. I want to make a difference in this world. We've all dreamed of that at some point. What is a life that makes a difference? According to this verse, it's a life that is lived based on the resurrection. A life lived based on the resurrection. And here's my question to us this morning. Are you living a life that looks stupid if Jesus is not raised from the dead? If you aren't going to be raised from the dead? Are you living a life that looks foolish if there is no resurrection? How are your choices looking lately? How much does it cost you to love people? Do you make difficult, risky decisions? Or do you look like the world? Do you live for what the world loves? Do you live for the American dream or do you make choices that would be considered imprudent if there is no resurrection from the dead? Our lives should have a a certain saltiness to them that it it just kind of doesn't make sense to non-believers. They look at our lives and they're wondering, and that's why Peter says they're going to ask you about the hope that you have, because my hope is not in this life. And I'm living in such a way that people obviously know my hope is not wrapped up in this life. My hope is wrapped up in seeing Jesus in the next. Luke 14, verse 13 says this. Jesus says, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they have no means to repay you and you'll be paid back at the resurrection. You'll be blessed because you're living a countercultural way. You make money and you give it away. You live off of little and you give the rest away. You make decisions that would look foolish If there were no resurrection from the dead. We of all people are most to be envied. We have a hope that cannot be shattered. We have a savior who lives forevermore. And is waiting to call us home to be with himself forever. We have a hope that is unassailable. So how do we apply all this? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58. The last verse. This is how Paul applies it. Therefore, because there is a resurrection from the dead, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing with confident assurance that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Maybe you've been working 
Maybe you've been ministering. Maybe you share the gospel. Maybe you're, you're, you're working in some capacity in your life and working on sanctification and growth. And you just, you want to call it quits. You're done. I've been praying for that person for so long and they do not believe in Jesus. I call it quits. I've been working so hard to love them and they will have none of it. I call it quits. Paul says, if you believe the resurrection from the dead, you have a hope that will enable you to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because the works that you are doing by the grace of God are never in vain, ever. They will never be in vain. So, believer, what do you do with the resurrection? You cling to the hope of your risen Savior. You cling to the one who conquered sin and conquered death. Yes, the presence of sin still remains in your life. Yes, there is sin sin still in your heart and in your flesh. Yes, it's still there. And oh, for the day that that presence of sin will be gone in heaven forever. But brothers and sisters, the power and the penalty of sin have been broken. Sin is no longer a master over you. Because of the resurrection from the dead and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you to work and abound always in work that produces. It's not vain. Your toil produces. So trust, press into the resurrection of Jesus and find the new life that you have in your Savior. And if you're here this morning and and you wonder what all this talk is about, what is sin? Who is Jesus? What is hell? What is heaven? What's going on? The application to you this morning is to stare at the gospel and to know the truth of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all offended a holy God. We all do wrong things. We all know that. We're all messed up people. Unfortunately, the wages, the things that we earn and deserve because of our sin is death. We've offended an infinitely holy God and therefore our punishment is infinite and holy as well. And God would be just to send sinners into an eternity separated from his grace and his love and his mercy because That's ultimately what we'd want. I don't want God. I don't want him. I don't want to be next to him. I hate him. I want my autonomy. I want to be ruler and lord of my own life. I don't want to submit to anybody. And God says, fine, you can have that for all eternity. The wages of our sin is death. That's why we love Jesus. Jesus was born perfectly God, perfectly man. How that all works in the Bible says it's a mystery. We don't fully know. But we know it's true. Jesus came holy, sinless, never once having a sinful thought, a sinful action, a sinful attitude, a sinful emotion, perfectly sinless. And then the wages of our sin, death, he takes upon himself such that God the Father looks at Jesus and treats Jesus on the cross as if he had lived our sinful lives so that God the Father could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfection. 
This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So we have a substitute. We have somebody who took our place, who bore the penalty of our sin, who broke the power of our sin, and who graciously says, I will give you freedom and forgiveness from the sin that you must answer for because I've answered for it on the cross. The cross is not just some sad story of martyrdom. The cross is a victorious story of somebody saying, I will willingly die in their place, take their penalty, and forgive them fully. What must you do? Nothing. If you try to earn God's favor, you disqualify yourself from receiving the gift because you're trying to pay for a gift. If you say, no, no, I can work to make God happy with me then you're ultimately saying, what's the point of the cross? Jesus did work to make God happy with me, but I can make God happy with me on my own. So Jesus says, believe in me, follow me, receive me. That's more satisfying than anything that this world has to offer because I've given you eternal life. And if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then that eternal life is yours. And you will see your life changed. You will see affections change. You will see desires change. You will see a heart that used to hate the things of God now love the things of God and treasure him more than life itself. All of that is possible only through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. On that day that Jesus came out of the tomb, that stone was rolled away, not so that he could get out, was rolled away so the disciples could get in and see that he's not there. Our salvation was secured. And if Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, and if the Father, by raising Jesus from the dead, said, yes, it is finished, then we can live in confident assurance. Today, we're forgiven. Death has no hold over us. Death has no sting. And our Savior deserves all the praise because of that. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his amazing life. Thank you for his glorious death. And thank you for his majestic resurrection. Oh God, how we long to worship him this morning. To see the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of our hope and confident assurance in the risen Savior. Grow our affections for him as we meditate upon his sacrifice, upon his death, and upon his resurrection in our place. We pray in the name of our risen Savior. Amen.